Hey everyone, I'm John Steele, and this is After Four, a podcast for InterVarsity alumni. Life after college is hard, and even a great experience with your InterVarsity chapter doesn't shield you from the challenges of transition. As we hear stories from real alumni learning how to make it in their post-InterVarsity reality, my hope is that this podcast will offer some encouragement, a few laughs, and even some hope for the future. This is After Four, and these are your stories. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to After Four, the podcast for InterVarsity alumni. I'm John Steele, and it's great to be here with you for yet another episode. So my wife and I have these fitness trackers that we wear. They're different step goals we can hit each day to put a few dollars into the health savings account that we have through her insurance. While I was doing the math earlier today to see how much money I might still be able to squeeze in there based on the number of days left this year, did you realize that we only have like 70-some days left in 2021? How is that possible? 2020 felt like it lasted for about a decade. This year, I feel like every time I sit in a slightly longer-than-usual Taco Bell line, a quarter of the year flies by. Crazy. Now, if you're a new listener, these are the kinds of riveting pre-interview topics you can expect to hear each time you tune into a new episode. Come back next week and listen as I speculate about the weather. It's the kind of content that keeps you hooked. As for the secondary content you tune in for, this week we have part two of my chat with Rick Matson. InterVarsity apologist, evangelist, and author. Last week, we got to hear a bit about Rick's experience after graduating, and then started our Stump the Chump session with questions about the church. Do we actually need to be part of the church? If the church is such an important part of God's redemptive plan, then why does it keep hurting people? If you're tuning in today and haven't listened to part one, pause this episode for now and go back and listen. It's a great conversation. Then, come back and listen to this week's episode where Rick answers my question about whether or not we even need God in this high-access world that we live in. Then, after a few more chump-stumping questions, Rick will share a bit about what it looks like to share your faith when you no longer have a consistent InterVarsity chapter evangelism structure to lean on. Uh, I think that's about it. Let's go ahead and jump in here. Enjoy the rest of my chat with Rick. Rick, as we're talking about this, I kind of want to scale this question. As we look at the culture that we live in, certainly this is not the case for everyone. I'll note that right off the bat. But I think for many of us, we live in a world where we have very easy access to the things that we need and even so many of the things that we want that we don't need. Why is it that we even need God in the first place in this high access culture that we live in? What is the benefit of God in our lives? Sometimes it feels like I just don't even see the difference with or without him. Well, in a sense, we don't need God to live good lives because we are still the beneficiaries of a largely Christian culture for a number of centuries. We are living off the residual benefits of that. But I do think that at some point when culture becomes more secular, more distanced from God, we're going to start to see a bigger difference between those who are following Jesus and those who are not. So for the intellectual life, we need minds that are redeemed. Now, we do benefit from the common grace of minds that have been redeemed by God in the past, and so we are heirs of that, praise God. But at some point, as the chasm between Christian faith and secular culture widens, minds are going to be less redeemed, and common grace that is resourced from Christian heritage is going to shrink and people are going to need God more. You know, there's a guy in Cincinnati that I'm acquainted with. His name is Bart Campolo, former Christian. And so what Bart is doing is starting a secular church 
we got together and Bart said, well, the church is what's good at community. The church is what's good at caregiving. The church is what's good at uh, organizing and caring. We need all the things the church can do. We just don't need God to do it. And in a sense, he's right. You're living off the benefits and the resources of the church. But at some point, those are going to dry up for secular culture. And then I think it's going to be more obvious that we need God. So if we really want to be fully human, John, then we will go out and live our lives and serve our communities in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're just a secular person, you have common grace and you're still in the image of God. So you have that going for you. But for a person to take full advantage of the Holy Spirit in a good way and to live out flourishing lives, it's the rocket fuel of our lives. And to ignore the rocket fuel, to say, well, I can do just as good in my own strength as I can with the power of the Holy Spirit, that's not even intellectually true. Now, if we don't take advantage of what God offers us, the opportunity to walk in the power of the Spirit, well, that's something else. That's a carnal Christian. That's someone who's not walking in the Spirit. Then maybe you couldn't tell the difference that much. But for those of us who want to submit our lives to the pathway that God is creating for us, that is so much more powerful than doing it in our own strength. You know, John 15 reminds us of that, that apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what Jesus says. So it appears that that's not true in the short run. You go out and you do good things and you serve people and you help people and you're kind and all of that. But I think what Jesus is getting at is in the long run, in the kingdom of God, in creation overall, if we want to participate in the ultimate ends, the ultimate fullness of the kingdom, we'll do so in the power of the Spirit by following Jesus with our lives. And that's always going to be a qualitative difference than just doing it in our own strength. Activism is a huge part of our culture. And there are many people who have outright rejected God, but are doing good things in the community around them that want to be actively engaged. Sometimes it can be difficult to see that there's any kind of a difference of whether or not that rocket fuel is actually needed to be able to do those things. Yeah. And I think that without God, eventually all of this devolves into secularism. And in secularism, there's no soul, the arts are optional. Ethics. Yes, we have ethics now that to some extent overlap with biblical ethics, but hey, there's no guarantee of that. Ethics are whatever serves the state. Just look back into a 20th century communist regimes, some of which continue to this day. Ethics is whatever serves the state, not what is kind and what serves and nurtures people and their true human flourishing. So eventually things devolve. They don't progress. They regress into a kind of secularism that is more mechanical and that can ignore the arts and can ignore ethics and just do whatever it pleases. Rick, this probably feels like a hard shift here, but something else that you were talking about as you graduated, as you went into the church, that one of the big questions that you were asking is, what does it look like for us to continue studying the Bible well post-college? You know, I've had this small group that's met every week. We all were a part of this inductive Bible study together. How do you engage with the Bible as an adult outside of your university community? I think the first thing is to have realistic expectations of what you're going to find in the church and to give people some grace. We've got it pretty good in university. We've learned how to study the Bible inductively. We do manuscript studies. It's not necessarily all that common in the church, but we can still study the Bible inductively on our own, and we can help our churches do that. My wife has been doing that at our church, helping some of the women to get more involved directly in the text. And it's been eye-opening for them. So really exciting. So I would say continue to read inductively as much as you can and stay in touch with your uh, college friends if it's not happening in your church. But I think just give your church some grace and be 
a change agent, be a person who's there to help out and reform and help improve things. And then secondly, I would say, read the Bible in community. Now, stepping out a little bit from your church context per se, but wherever you have Christians, we need to be reading the Bible with our fellow Christians and not just confine ourselves to individual Bible reading. And I guess we talked about this earlier, to immerse ourselves in the body of Christ. And that means reading the text of the Lord Jesus, the Bible. And then thirdly, I would say along those same lines, read the Bible in the context of the historic church community. And what I mean by that is our readings, our interpretation of scripture need to be in line with how the church has always read and interpreted the Bible. And that will prevent us from having some of these weird novel interpretations of scripture that uh, get people off starting new uh, cults, you know, a new sect. So I would say be aware of church history and be aware of how the church has always interpreted the scriptures. And that's not a monolith. The church has had many debates over the centuries of how to interpret the Bible, but we should be aware of those debates, which means we need to be historians at some level. We need to value our own history, understand some of those debates. So you might have, for example, John, a debate about how to interpret certain passages about predestination and free will. Well, that's not a new debate. The church has been debating that question for 20 centuries. Well, to be aware of that debate and to be operating within the guardrails, let's say, of that debate and other discussions is a way to keep ourselves on track in the Bible. And then next, I would say we need to read the text with ancient eyes. In other words, we need to try to discover what the authors intended. And that will help us have realistic expectations of the text and not expect the text to address every single 21st century concern. Now, indirectly, it will address those concerns, but more often, the Bible addresses its own concerns, and it does so in its own historical context. You know, the Bible is not written to us. It's written for us. It's written for everyone, but it's written to the ancient audience. So we need to look over the shoulders of the ancient peoples and read the text as it was received by them and interpret the authors in its own context. And that will also help us have realistic expectations and powerful experiences in the scripture. You know, John, there's just so many good commentators and scholars who are doing good biblical work right now. We need to be aware of those and use them to help us read the text in a way that really makes sense. A, in the ancient world, and then B, we can transpose to our own world. And it always has to be that. It always has to be ancient world first, contemporary world secondly. And when we do that, I think our experiences in the Bible are going to be more powerful. They also won't seem as weird. You know, the Bible can seem weird relative to contemporary culture. But if we read the text on its own terms, in its own culture, it will be normal and it will set the standards of what's normative. And we can measure our own culture by the normative standards of scripture instead of measuring scripture by the supposed normative standards of our own culture. That has been one of the most exciting things for me in the years that I've been associated with InterVarsity as a student, as a volunteer, as a staff, being introduced to the inductive method of study, continuing to pursue that even outside of college. But then the way that that method incorporates historic context and saying, what is it that the people that this was written to would understand that I don't understand right now? One, I mean, that just makes scripture way more fascinating and it makes it 
almost just like a new story to read again when you take into account these things that, that the people of the day would have understood. But then it does make it so much easier to understand and to figure out how to apply appropriately and how to stand it up side by side with the things that our culture is talking about today. Because our culture is going to come and go. It's going to shift. It's going to change the things that are normal or expected 20, 30, 50 years from now, five years from now. These things are going to be different than what they are today. But those truths of scripture will stand strong. And that's the thing that we can keep comparing to. And John, let's just give it a specific example. The Old Testament was written in a time period where it was normal for all the gods of all the nations to be at war. That was the understood motif that defines all of life. Well, here on earth, that meant that cities, tribes, states were constantly at war. So <laughs> victory and success or defeat and death, that's sort of how life was. And so if that's your starting point, that's what all of culture is like, cultures, I should say, in the ancient world. Well, if you read the Old Testament and the Old Testament violence kind of in that context, it starts to make sense of the ancient world and it starts to make sense of the texts. But if you measure those texts by modern standards, you know, here in America, you got 50 states, and for the most part, they're trying to cooperate with each other. It's not open warfare. If that's your norm, and then you measure the ancient texts by that, the texts are going to seem weird. Go back and read the texts in their own context, and you'll have a lot easier time reading the Old Testament and understanding what's going on there. How easy it is for us just to write something off as weird or barbaric instead of saying, oh, this was exactly in line with the understanding of those cultures. How does that give me fresh eyes to read this? That feels really helpful. Rick, we've grappled with a few different questions here, but I recognize one, there are many questions that we could never address completely in this space. And two, that even just out of scripture itself, there are so many things that we don't understand at this point. So someone who is faced with these questions or with other questions like them, and they just are not finding answers how can people who are in that space continue journeying with Jesus, even in the midst of uncertainty? I think it depends on the person. Some people, they need intellectual resolution to their questions. And then you can read, though, there's so many good apologists out there right now. Tim Keller, I would say, is one of the best, or Lee Strobel is another really good one. He's pretty scholarly, but he's really great at taking the academic material and making it understandable for lay people. I'd recommend reading them. And there's so many good online resources as well. You can go over to BioLogos and read a lot about science and faith. Another author I like just for understanding the Old Testament is David Lamb. I think his book is called God Behaving Badly. There's just so much good intellectual work being done by Christian scholars and popularizers. I consider myself a popularizer. I'm one who reads the scholars and tries to make it palatable for lay people. So people can go to my blog, and I've written on so many different topics and tried to make things understandable for people who are not philosophically minded. But anyway, there's just a ton of resources. Then for people who are not philosophically minded, I'd say get into a good Bible study and immerse yourself in community and be a worshiper and be a server. And the more you do it, the more you're in the habit of worshiping, serving, being with the people of God, studying God's word, the more the Christian faith starts to feel native to you. It resonates with you in a deep way. But when you're sort of standing on the outside in your skepticism, looking in, it doesn't look like that that could ever be the case. It's only when you enter in and make it your own 
existential experience that it sort of makes sense in your experience when you're carrying it out. When you're practicing it, it makes sense. When you're not practicing it, it doesn't look like it could make sense. I would just encourage people to dive in. One of my skeptical friends from a while back, her name is Sarah. And she's fond of telling the story. Yeah, when I looked at the church from the outside, it just looked weird. And then when I got inside, yes, sometimes it still felt weird, but gradually it felt more normal. And now I wouldn't be without it. And I'm so glad she put it that way because you have to experience it firsthand. You can't just stand on the sidelines and criticize it and expect to understand it. It feels like an opportunity to live an empirical life. It's one thing to study. It's one thing to look into what have other people written about this. But until you actually step in and try, for a while, it's sort of like reading about how to swim as opposed to getting in the water and actually swimming. That's good. There's only so much that you can learn until you actually just jump in the water. And it's the same thing with living within the church community and living a life of faithfulness with Jesus is that you kind of have to do it to understand it. The ancient phrase is faith and practice. There's the faith in Christ, but then there's the practice of living out the disciplines and callings of the Christian life. And it has to be both. Rick, we've leaned really heavily into the apologist side, uh, but you've said that you are both an apologist and an evangelist. As I think about students who have been a part of a Christian organization, that sharing the gospel is a big part of what we do, but you are no longer doing proxies. You're not living down the hall from your friends. You're spending all of your time at work. How is it that you practically integrate evangelism and sharing your faith with people around you when you're no longer living within a structure that really really sets that up nicely for you? Well, I think the first thing is to bring with you out of college, out of graduate school, a theology of evangelism that makes sense for all of life. And to me, that theology is this, God goes before us. It's as simple as that. The Lord is the one who opens doors. He softens hearts. He gives us opportunities for conversation. And our job then is not to be evangelists who are really good at the technique of evangelism. Our job is to be detectives, to listen and to watch, to discern what he's already doing in the lives of our non-Christian friends. And once you get in that habit, it changes everything. If we believe that God goes before us, then whether you're at your bowling league or your knitting club, or in my case, your golf league, you're just there spying out the land and figuring out what the Lord is doing. And once you start to discern God's work in people, then you start to ask questions and you find out how you can participate in what God is already doing. Sharing the message with people is not the first technique. We don't bring Jesus to people. We discover Jesus in people. And then we participate because God wants to use us. He has called us to be his partners in his work. So just to give you an example, at my golf club, I've been there seven years now, and I just started a reading group. And I just went around to the people that I thought would say yes at first, and they did. So two or three of those. And then once I got those, I went to people that I thought might be a little bit harder sell. And I said to them, hey, I'm starting this reading group. It's called Bread and Butter. We're going to be reading in the Gospel of Mark. I've already got three people signed up. We're going to cap it at 12. Love to have you be part of it. It only lasts six weeks. So guess what happened, John? I asked 12 people, and all 12 said yes. So that kind of surprised me. But, you know, that's me. That's something that I would do. Not everyone will do it like I do. So I think finding your own voice in evangelism is important, but it all depends on this prior theology. I sensed that God was going ahead of me in the lives of these 12 people. I could have been wrong easily, but in this case, it seems God prepared them to say yes. And so they did. This is marketplace. This is not campus. So 
the person in the cubicle next to you, the person in the apartment next to you, the person down the street, God is working in their life. And your job is to go get to know that person and pray your way into their life and ask, what is God doing in this person's life and how can I get involved? Sharing different aspects of the faith or inviting them in to read something with you or invite them to a concert or invite them into a conversation, whatever it means. I don't always know what the next step is, but I do know that when God paves the way, then things pop. And when we think that we can just go make it happen with our own evangelism techniques, that's probably not going to work so well. The second major thing I would say is find out what is your church doing for outreach? Get involved in community service and get involved in missions and get involved in the evangelism programs at your church. And you'll get there. You might be a little disappointed at how they're doing things, or hey, it might be a step up from what you had at campus. Either way, get involved. Take a humble approach. Give much grace. Say to yourself, I don't know everything here. I have something to learn from these good people. They've been doing this a long time. And if they need some help improving things, then you can be an agent of change there as well. But I'd say get involved and think of evangelism as being part of a community that's reaching out and establishing the kingdom of God in your neighborhood and in your city. How often do we just think that the places around us are just these spiritually desolate places. They're just totally dark. There's nothing happening. And so it's up to me to bring life to these places. It's sort of an arrogant thought to not realize that God has loved these people long before I was aware that they were around. And he's going to love them long after I'm gone from this equation. And he's been working and will continue to work. He's just asking, hey, do you want to come join me in what I'm already doing? Which brings me to another question, Rick, as you've been in some of these situations, as you're trying to discern, is this person ready for a next step of invitation? Are there any kind of general things that people can be on the lookout for? When I talk about church, when I talk about reading the Bible, when I talk about prayer, or when I offer to pray for people, which I often do, and I, and I don't care if they are Christians or not, or atheists or not. And I'm not one to say, oh, will this person be offended if I, uh, no, just say, hey, I heard your mother is ill. I just want you to know that I'm praying for her and I'll just lift her up before the Lord. So when I drop little things like that in conversation, which I do all the time with a big smile on my face, it doesn't have to be some evangelism hat that I'm putting on. I'm just being myself. Hey, our culture is into authenticity. That's the authentic self for me. So dropping those things in conversation, I'm always watching, well, how does this person respond to that? If their eyes light up, or if they make a comment, or if they say, thank you, that means so much to me, then I know that there's a next step to be taken with this person. So this young woman who waits on us at the club when we eat in the grill, one time when she was waiting on us, I said to her, hey, we pray. Anything I can pray for for you? And she goes, oh, pray for my mother. Boom. That tells me that she's open to the idea of prayer, that God is working in her life. And I don't know where she's at in her spiritual journey. But as it turns out, I did invite her into our reading group. And she said yes. And she said, oh, my other friend might also be interested. So she asked her friend and her friend said yes. So now they're both in my Bible reading group. And I would have never known that had I not chanced something, had a little risk with a big smile on my face, no serious judgmentalism here. And that's how it happens. So I think just asking questions and being friendly and kind to people, praying for them and telling them that we're praying for them, talking about our lives at church and fellowship, talking about the little miracles in our lives, just watch for the response. And if the response seems to be going somewhere, then you've got somewhere to go. If the response isn't going somewhere, then maybe you've reached the limits of where the Holy Spirit has taken this person. 
That's interesting that the idea of sharing your faith or welcoming somebody into a next step isn't just doing a cannonball into a pool. Sometimes you can <laughs> you can just stick your toe in the water first and get a feel for the temperature. We don't have to take the most bold step first. We can take just a little step to get an idea like, will this give me a hint? And then can I follow that to a place where I know what the right invitation is? I think it depends on your personality too. I'm an indirect Minnesotan, even though I'm very bold in evangelism. Some people, God just gave you a more direct personality. Sheesh, use it. The Lord gave that to you as a gift. And if you're just comfortable being more direct, and then you can be somewhere between the cannonball and the toe in the water. <laughs> and uh, that's great. Uh, that's awesome. Go for it, because that's how God made you. Rick, any final exhortations that you would give as far as people trying to sort out what doing evangelism post-college looks like? Hey, stay in touch with your university staff and your college friends. There's tons of resources in and around InterVarsity that apply not just to campus, but do apply to marketplace and to church. The five thresholds, a lot of InterVarsity alumni know what the five thresholds are. That is such a profound framework for evangelism, and you can use it anywhere. So don't forget about that stuff that InterVarsity can still resource you with in your post-college, post-graduate student life. So I have two more questions for you, Rick. We're circling back to questions that are a part of our rhythm with every guest here. If you could go back, now that you've lived all of this life post-college, you have so much wisdom and experience. If you could go back and talk to about to graduate Rick, is there any advice that you would give yourself? Oh my goodness. Slow down. Walk humbly. Believe that older people have wisdom and experience that I can benefit from. Don't be a dang know-it-all. <laughs> a lot of people don't have this profile and these problems, but I did. So that's what I would tell myself. And, you know, the problem is my younger self probably wouldn't listen <laughs> just by the nature of what I'm saying. But uh, I don't know, maybe he would. Maybe. At least you could give it an effort here. Rick, this has been a very enjoyable conversation. Tell us what are some of the other things that you're working on or resources that you already have that people could engage with if they want to keep learning about big faith questions? If you want a book that will coach your conversations in evangelism, especially with people who have hard questions, I wrote a book called Faith is Like Skydiving, published by University Press. And that book is full of stories and illustrations and tips for you to answer the hard questions of your friends and to progress with them in evangelism. I have another book called Faith Unexpected. It's just a book of stories of people who came to faith. And you can give that book out to your friends who are not Christians. There's no preaching in there. It's just inspiring stories that will inspire faith in your friends. So I give out that book all the time. In fact, I would say four or five of the people I have in my reading group at my golf club right now, first read that book. And that's how I found out that they would be interested in a deeper faith life. So that's called Faith Unexpected. And you can pick up these resources at my website, rickmatsonoutreach.com. The resources are on there. And then the blog, you can get really bite-sized pieces on all these topics we've been talking about and many more, hopefully in a way that lay people can understand that aren't too technical, aren't too philosophical. And hopefully those would be a benefit to you. You know, John, people can write to me too. I'm not too busy to respond to emails. So rick.matson at innovarsity.org. That's rick.m-a-t-t-s-o-n at innovarsity.org. Just uh, email me and I'd be glad to respond. That's a pretty sweet invitation. There's not very <laughs> many times that an author gives out their actual email address. So and I'm not that big. So <laughs> <laughs> Rick, this has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you being on the show. John Steele, you're a good man. Let's stay in touch. 
make a Star Wars reference, so serious Star Wars nerds, give me a break if I get something wrong, and people who aren't into Star Wars, just bear with me. You know that iconic scene at the end of A New Hope, where Luke is flying down the trench on the Death Star, getting ready to fire his proton torpedoes at the thermal exhaust port, the one tiny weak spot that would destroy the Death Star and secure victory for the Rebels? It's basically this million-to-one shot that he'll hit it. Others have failed before him, and it's really unlikely that he's going to get it either. That's oftentimes how I feel about personal evangelism, and probably a lot of other things in life. I've got one chance. I have to try all the fancy maneuvers that will hopefully keep me from getting shot down. I have to line up my invitation perfectly, because just a slight miscalculation will result in failure. But then in the movie, Luke hears the voice of his mentor and friend, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Use the Force, Luke. And he puts away his targeting computer, trusts the guidance of the Force, and plants those proton torpedoes right in the middle of that exhaust port that Galen Erso so sneakily designed. It's a direct hit, and the day is saved. Cue all the cheering. Okay, it may not be a perfect example, but this is how I imagine it when I trust that the Lord goes before us, as Master Rick Matson Kenobi reminds us. It's not about my perfect timing. It's not about my high-tech evangelism techniques. It's about trusting that the one who is actually in control, the God of the universe, has already been working in this person, and that he has invited me to be a part of that with him. I may still crash and burn from time to time. I may have an awkward conversation every now and then. But if I trust that God goes before me, then ultimately, I can't fail in my evangelism efforts because I am moving in step with the Spirit. And I think that's pretty cool. Thanks, Rick, for sharing your wisdom with us. It was great to hear from you. You know who else would be great to hear from? You. If you haven't done it already, why don't you find us on Facebook or Instagram at After4Pod and then drop us a line. Leave a comment, send a message, slide into those DMs, however you want to do it. Say hello, ask a question, tell us about a major life after college moment or a favorite moment from the podcast. Let's chat. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, that's it for this week. Join me next time when we chat with Claire, a recent graduate who worked with Rick during her grad work in Michigan. She'll share even more about what it looks like to practically share your faith outside of college. Until then, see you next time alone.